Economics as a profession has steered the world in kind of a wrong way. This is not hopeless. There are ideas out there. You're claiming that economics can save the world. On the one hand, I'm saying we need to take economics seriously. It can help. Dismissing it wholesale is positively harmful. But I'm also saying that economics is not, in fact, as good as it could be. We don't disagree. It can save the world, but can and will are two entirely different or things. Or has, so. yeah. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Regular listeners of Pitchfork Economics might think that you and I are a little uh, cynical, Nick. We talk a, a lot of smack about economics. Uh, and people roll their eyes at me when I say this, but actually, I think, I think we're, we're steeped in optimism. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. It's a, a highly schizophrenic life to be as angry and cynical about the field of economics as we are and yet devote virtually all of our energy to economics and, and improving it. <laughs> right, and we do that because, A, we believe that we can improve the field of economics. And in fact, Nick, it's been almost nine years now since you brought me on to help you with your efforts. At the time, you yeah. told me the mission was to redefine capitalism. Yes. Uh, I think we're going beyond that. But so much has changed in the past nine years, yeah. uh, in the field of economics and in the public narrative about economics, there's been all this movement. It's actually really exciting. And, and at the core of what we do, the mission of this podcast is to change the way people talk and think about economics, to tell a better story about how the economy really works. And we wouldn't be doing this. We wouldn't be wasting our time on this podcast and wasting your money when you could yeah. be out there and, and enjoying the good life um, if we didn't think that there was progress to be made, that, that we could actually change the world. No, it's so true. It's so true. And, and sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. But you're right, Goldie, uh, there has been a lot of progress since we began. Uh, the $15 minimum wage went from the world's dumbest idea to, you know, effectively common sense over that right. time. And you know, the economic consensus around it dramatically changed. Uh, it, not only did it change in terms of public perception, but also uh, the economic consensus changed around it too. And, you know, we had a small part to play in all of that. Uh, but today we get to talk to uh, an author who's even more optimistic than we are, named Eric Agner, uh, a Swedish economist uh, who's written a new book called How Economics Can Save the World. Yeah, and we don't disagree. It can save the world, but can and will are two entirely different <laughs> or things. Or has, so. yeah. Very, very different. So, But it'll be super fun to talk to Eric, and, and maybe some of his optimism will rub off on us. 
My name is Eric Agner. I'm professor of practical philosophy at Stockholm University, but I'm an economist as well as a philosopher. And most of my work, my research and my teaching is in the intersection of the two fields. I wrote a book, most recently, How Economics Can Save the World on Penguin, which came out just a few months ago, and which argues that we should take economics seriously as a science in the interest of making the world a better place. Can I ask you first, what is practical philosophy? I studied philosophy but I don't think it was very practical. Practical <laughs> philosophy is a technical term for like questions that have to do with uh, life, basically, um, whereas theoretical philosophy concerns questions that have to do with the world. The distinction goes back to Aristotle. Um, actually, that's how they organized his lecture notes. But here we have departments that are separated into theoretical and practical. Oh, interesting. So uh, I'd like to start off... Um, you're, the big claim, you're, you're claiming that economics can save the world. But before we get into how, if you could make a distinction for us between economics as you describe it broadly in the book and the kind of narrow neoclassical economics that still dominates um, at the introductory level, what most people learn in college and university. What I'm defending is the idea of economics as a science, a systematic empirical approach to the way that people behave in society and the implications of that behavior for the world as a, as a whole. That means I'm not talking about the profession at all, right? The profession leaves very much to be desired. And um, the thing that I think of as economics doesn't always match the stuff that gets taught, especially at the introductory level. Part of the problem that I'm trying to address is that there's a picture of economics that you get at the undergraduate level and that you get when you listen to people on television and whatever that doesn't at all match the sort of stuff that people are doing in uh, actual real-life economics department. There's so much exciting stuff happening that nobody ever hears about and that's not taught at the uh, foundational level and so on. And so part of what I was trying to do with the book is to say, hey, you know, economics is a lot more interesting than you might think. It's a lot more actionable than you might think. And it doesn't have the implications that some people claim it does. But, Eric, you know, Milton Friedman was pretty excited about his work, too. Modesty wasn't his uh, strong suit, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As was James Buchanan and lots of other of my favorite people. Um, <laughs> and they were wrong. I mean, they, they were both positively wrong and, in my opinion, normatively wrong. And economics is a profession, not, not to gang up on you, has steered the world largely in, in kind of a wrong way for the last 40 or 50 years. I, I actually agree with you that there is some pretty exciting stuff going on in the field right now, empirical, empirical stuff that is coming up against the neoclassical and neoliberal theory that has been so damaging. Why are you optimistic today? So I think what's going on is that I mean, people form an opinion, quite reasonably, of the whole discipline based on a small number of figures who get a lot of visibility in the media and elsewhere, authors of the textbooks and whatever. So when you turn on the television and somebody appears and they're uh, presented as an economist, I mean, you're primed to think right, that they're reflecting a consensus opinion of, yeah. of the profession or something. But the people that you see 
are not a representative sample of what people in the profession are doing, right? There are people who actively seek out the limelight, and there are people who actively seek out controversy to some extent. Some of them are academics, right? Many of them are hired guns. They work for yeah. think tanks. They're paid to push a particular agenda. They're not paid to, like, tell you in a pedagogical fashion about the nature of the science. And so one thing that I want to get away from is, like, focusing on these high-profile people who appear on television who are there because they make for good TV, right? They're combative or, or whatever. And I want to look at people who are, you know, respected economists, people in the profession who are taken seriously, but who are doing more thoughtful uh, multifaceted work. And so, for example, I talk about Al Roth, right, who designed the system that we use to allocate kidneys. He uh, happens to be, he was my first economics professor, and so um, I know him and his work relatively well. And if you read his book on these things, he's not at all like pushing a neoliberal line. He believes in markets, right, as a way to distribute even things like kidneys. But it's not a commodity market. It's not a market where the highest bidder gets the uh, kidney and the poor people are left hung out to dry. He explicitly criticizes the the picture of the world that we operate with, where, you know, you have the government on the one side and like the free market, the laissez-faire picture on the other. He's pushing a view that's very different from that. He's not in favor of like command and control solutions, like very far from it. But he's also not at all defending, you know, the laissez-faire view that you might get from somebody in the tradition of, of Milton Friedman. And I think in many ways he's more representative of what the actual profession is doing. If you look at the profession uh, politically, they're somewhere in the middle. They might be a little left of center, in fact. They're not the sort of, you know, you might think of like the lunatic, neoliberal um, apologist or something. People like that exist, but they don't represent the, the profession as a, as a whole. I talk about Eleanor Ostrom, right, yeah. who was a political scientist mm -hmm. at first, but uh, who did a ton of, of economics. She has similar themes where... She says, you know, we're, we need to go beyond this binary between individual and collective, market and state. Many solutions to real problems are found at an intermediate level in civil society. She talked about polycentricity, which is her vision of a good world where yeah. different problems are solved at different solutions by institutions that respond to people's needs. This is a very different picture from the one that you get from the most high-pitched voices, you know, uh, in the Financial Times and whatever. But that's also economics. And these ideas are out there and they're not getting the kind of attention that they deserve. Before we come back and probe... Could you expand on the thesis of your book a little bit more and give some examples? I, I'm mesmerized by the intersection of philosophy and economics because I think it's exactly where we should be. But just expand on your thesis a little bit more. Yeah, so when I say that economics can save the world, what I mean is that it can fix like the big problems in the same way that modern medicine can fix um, illness or promote health. It might be worth spending a few moments just thinking about what that means. If I say that modern medicine works, that it cures disease, I'm not saying it's like guaranteed to work, right? Medicine doesn't work 100% of the time. I'm not saying it works like magically, like a magic wand or a silver bullet. I'm not saying uh, uh, you have to have a medical doctor in order to affect 
a cure of a disease. I'm not saying medicine can fix the problem on its own, right? Normally, medicine has to be combined with exercise and diet and maybe like affection and human touch and, and things. With that in mind, what I'm not saying is that economics can just fix big problems magically and on its own. It needs to be applied thoughtfully by practitioners who know what they're doing. And it needs to be applied with a sense for the values of the people on the receiving end and with a sense of ethics and aesthetics. Like You can't be a good doctor if you don't have a sense for medical ethics. And in the same way, I'm arguing you can't be a good economist unless you have some sense for the relevant ethics and indeed Aesthetics, right? If we're going to build a better world, we might as well build a, a beautiful one with the help of artists and poets and philosophers and, and so on. And so I genuinely believe that economics and the other social and behavioral sciences could do a whole lot of good. But it's not like I'm not saying we should just hand the power over to the economists and ask them to, to fix it. In fact, I explicitly argue against that view. So what I say is that economics has to be coupled with decent values, like a decent sense for what a good life is, a decent sense for what the good society is. And those sorts of questions cannot be, should not be addressed by economists alone. The values involved have to come from the population who are, as I said, on the receiving end of the interventions, the people who are paying for the research and the people who live with, with the consequences. So at the end of the day, I'm calling for economics to be taken seriously, but I'm also calling for economics to be coupled with decent ethics, decent aesthetics. Um, it needs to be practiced with care and attention to people's values and so on. I should also, I might also add right away that the book has sort of two parts. On the one hand, I'm saying we need to take economics seriously. It can help. Dismissing it wholesale is positively harmful. But I'm also saying that economics is not, in fact, as good as it could be. And so it behooves us to, to make it as good as it could be, to improve it to the extent that we can in the interest of the well-being of humankind on the planet. Uh, in the book, you uh, you talk about how exciting some of the, the interdisciplinary contributions to economics are. You say that uh, economics is too important to be left to economists. What areas outside of economics do you see contributing the most to the field? To my mind, the most important adjacent discipline really is philosophy. So philosophy is the discipline where we engage in normative reflection in a systematic way, in a manner that's informed by centuries, you know, millennia of, of human reflection on this. Values matter. Even if you draw a sharp line between the scientific and the philosophical, the descriptive and the normative, you can't really implement economics. You can't really, you know, use economics to try to make a better world without engaging, without presupposing some sort of vision of what a good life is and what a good society is. And uh, given that that's true, we can't, we don't have the choice of ignoring it. The choice that we're facing is trying to engage in normative reflection in a systematic way, a manner that's informed by centuries and millennia of, of reflection, or just like winging it. And if you put it in those terms, I, I think, I hope, <laughs> that everyone will, will agree that like engaging in some degree of reflection is a good thing. 
And so I, I, one thing that I call for by the end of the book is more integration between economics and, and philosophy. Now, economics, as it's organized, it's famous for being insular. Economists cite non-economists at a much lower rate than other scientists cite people outside of their discipline. And that's got to change. I would love to see more interdisciplinary research. I'd love to see more teams integrating scientists and philosophers. Such teams exist when it comes to happiness research, for example. I, I know of such groups, and that's wonderful. I'd love to see more of those. Well, one of the things that I, I found fascinating in the book, and it's a, it's a subject that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, is you, you talk about scarcity. And, you know, famously, uh, economics has been described as the dismal science. It's been defined as a you know, a system for distributing scarcity, you know, scarce resources, how best to distribute them. But you talk about a different way of thinking about scarcity. Are you thinking about the sense of scarcity? Yeah, the sense of scarcity. I found that fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So um, if you pick up your random textbook, economics might be defined as the science of scarcity or the science of choice under scarcity or something. And in that sense, scarcity just means that there is less of the stuff around than we would want there to be. So everything is scarce, right? Because we want more of it than, than we have. But there's another definition of scarcity that people use in economics, and it's the psychological feeling of scarcity, the sense that you don't have enough. This might conserve a sense that you don't have enough money, but it could also con concern a sense that you don't have enough time or effort or something like that. And the thing about this uh, sense of scarcity is that it has a way of interfering with our ability to reason and act rationally. So if you feel like you're out of time, if you're really stressed, you might be getting worse at dealing with stress. I think we all recognize this to some extent, like some days you oversleep and you're trying to make coffee and find your keys and turn on your computer all at the same time. And you're likely to drop the keys and, you know, pour the coffee over the laptop and whatever. You're just so much more likely to make mistakes when you're feeling stressed like that. And this matters because if you're already poor and you feel a sense of, of poverty, a sense of scarcity, you will find it harder to act in ways that will make you not poor. And so being poor sort of has a, a tendency to preserve itself, right? The poorer you are, the greater the sense of scarcity, the harder it's going to be to act in a way to get you out of, of poverty. So even if it were in principle possible to lift yourself up by the bootstraps, and that's not at all a given, obviously, but even if that were true, you might not be able to do that. And this is important because there are certain kinds of interventions that we might do um, to help people along that are very different from what people will otherwise defend. So in politics, but also to some extent in sort of policy discussions, economics, people will sometimes say that the problem is that poor people have it too good, right? Their lives are too easy. They're getting too many benefits. What we need to do is to make their lives harder, to um, incentivize them to pull themselves up by the bootstraps or whatever. And what this research suggests is that that's exactly the wrong way to go about it. 
when you make the lives of poor people harder, they're just going to find it more and more difficult to do what they will would want to do, the sort of thing that they know is, is rational. So instead, what you might want to do is to make their lives easier. You might provide things like childcare, for example. Childcare is a massive problem for many people. If you're a single mom, um, you can't work if you don't have dependable childcare. If you have a parent or relative who can do it, great. Many people don't have that. And so if the government, you know, and city government can provide health care, making the lives of, of uh, single mothers easier, that might reduce the sense of scarcity and help them uh, pull themselves out of poverty. So the conclusion is the complete opposite of what you might hear. And it's a much more humane conclusion. But it's, it's not just like a do-gooder kind of thing, right? This is based on actual evidence, replicated research, and so on. And uh, people don't know about this. They don't hear about this anywhere as often as they hear about like the importance of making the lives of uh, poor people suck more. What jumped out at me about that, Eric, is that it, it, it shows you how powerful the language of economics is in changing the frame in which we look at policy. Because if you, if you take that knee-jerk definition of scarcity that is classically used in economics, that, oh, we, we don't have enough of stuff, and you look at things like childcare and you say, well, how can we afford it? Like, we already don't have enough money. We have to figure out what's the most efficient way to spend it. But if you change that definition to that sense of scarcity and how that interferes with the ability of people in poverty to actually climb out of poverty, uh, that it locks them into a certain way of responding to what's going on in the world, you get an, a completely opposite set of policy prescriptions, one where you, you would provide childcare, where you would provide money. And it's all locked up in how we think of that one word, how we understand it. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it interesting, right? You put on these different glasses and you see that something something very different, a different phenomenon jump out at you. I guess I'm thinking about this in part because I have personal experience with it. So I used to live in the D.C. area where everything is like super expensive, right? And we had just had twins, my wife and I, so we went from one to three kids. And childcare, where we lived in Fairfax, Virginia, was $1,100, I think, per child. So that's 3300 for three, right? And it's not deductible as a business expense. So you have to make like 5000 just to break even. And so as a junior academic, a postdoc or a junior professor, you might not even break even by uh, putting your kids in, in daycare. And then we moved to Sweden, where I We're, grew we're up. talking per month. Per month. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. And here, where we live, uh, daycare is free if you're poor if, or effectively free. If you're solidly middle class, it costs like 100 bucks a month. It's run by the city. You're guaranteed a spot if you need one within a certain time frame. Um, you can have it until school starts. And school, of course, is tuition free as well. And um, this has like economics conse economic consequences because all of a sudden, even if you've got a low salary, it makes sense for you to work, right? It's pretty obviously efficient because you can have like one staff member in a daycare center provide high quality childcare to eight kids, whereas if all the parents or all the mothers um, stay home, right, then one person is in charge of two, three kids. And so there's a strong economic case to be made for this sort of arrangement, and yet we don't see it for, for whatever reason. But this is economics too, right? You think about this from an economic mm -hmm. lens, you see that providing daycare, especially for low-income folks, is a really great idea if you want to get them back into work and allow them to support themselves in the long run. 
And then work, of, I mean, this is another thing that economics tells you, having work is really important for human uh, happiness. Unemployment is a major predictor of unhappiness. It makes people feel terrible to be unemployed, even when you correct for the loss in income. Like for the vast majority of people, get having good work is important for them as human beings. And so if you provide daycare to the kids so people can go back to work, you give them more money, but you also give them the sense of purpose involved in having a good job to go to. This is like such a win-win, uh, right? Uh, and it's, you know, it's economics. Or psychology. <laughs> right. So I, I don't want to draw like a sharp distinction between economics and neighboring yeah, because. I, I don't know really what hard. kind of eco economists you're hanging out with, but the ones I know <laughs> actually don't give a fuck, mostly. You should, you should come hang out with me and my friends yeah, then, because okay. I go to conferences and I learn so many interesting things. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So why do, the bad, why do the bad economists have so, so much influence on policy? <laughs> I don't want to say they're all bad, but, but you can see what happens, right? Who will have influence on policy? It's not a random sample. Like the humble ones, the ones who see advantages and disadvantages and who understand value conflict and whatever, they are so much less likely to volunteer for that kind of service. They're less likely to be sought out for that sort of service. You know, the story of uh, the president who wanted an un one armed economist, right? Because he hated the ones who said on the one hand and on the other hand. And I, I think that's indicative of uh, a big part of, of the problem. And then you have the, uh, the fact that so many of the people who appear as economists are hired guns. There are you know, narratives of people working for think tanks where instead of get, getting some premises and being tasked with figuring out what conclusion those premises lead to, they're given a conclusion and tasked with coming up with premises that will take them there. And in that kind of environment, you know what's going to happen, right? The results are just not going to be serious. And then there's a bunch of wannabes, you know, people who really aren't uh, economists at all, sometimes employed by, by banks. They appear on television, presented as economists, and they're effectively salespeople, right? Their job is to sell a certain institution and their financial packages. And, you know, we shouldn't expect what they say to reflect the consensus opinion among economists or, or something. So part of what's lacking here, I think, is just sort of like economic literacy. I don't, I don't want to blame anyone for lacking that because economics is famously inaccessible, right? If you're a curious, intelligent, normal person, you're trying to get a sense for what economics is about, like you could not pick up an economics journal and get, you know, anything out of that. It's just going to be complete gibberish. Economists are sadly uh, arrogant. And they are sometimes not as accommodating as they could be to people who aren't already themselves economists. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. But Part of what I'm trying to say is that there is a really interesting economics out there that's really helpful, uh, both at the individual and at the collective level. And we should all we would all be better off if we if we knew about it. You have a, a, a book with an incredibly optimistic title, and uh, Nick has been uh, particularly cynical today. Uh, very quickly, persuade Nick uh, why why he should be optimistic about economics and how it can save the world. Let's talk about climate change for a sec. So big problem, right? Um, there are all sorts of jokes about how economists can't agree on anything. But when it comes to climate change, overwhelmingly, economists think that what we ought to do is to 
tax carbon emissions. Um, there is a, uh, an open letter signed by literally thousands of economists, uh, Nobel laureates, Fed officials, and, and so on. This is not presented as a uh, magic wand, right? It's not presented as the only thing that we should do. But the idea is that we should just tax the hell out of the people who are causing the problem, and then we should crank up the tax until the problem is fixed. Again, it's not a magic solution. It might not work. Uh, it's not going to work on its own. It needs to be combined with other sorts of energy efficiency standards and, and whatnot. But here's a solution or a proposed solution that's like theoretically well-grounded. It is has been studied empirically, and it appears to work in places where it's being implemented, uh, not by its own, but in combination with other interventions. It's a uh, intervention that economists from left to right agree on, uh, right? You, you have uh, the Mankiw people and the Paul Krugman people and all sorts of other economists who just like basically agreed that that this uh, have a shot of, of working, and it's like it's workable, right? This is a proposal that we could implement if not tomorrow at least in, in the short term. And the fact that this is not getting more attention is to me something of a scandal. The open letter was published in the Wall Street Journals. This group took out like whole page ads and whatever, but it, it fizzled away. Um, they never could get the attention of the public and the opinion pages and whatnot. That could have several reasons. Uh, right? Maybe the people who would be taxed under this proposal don't like it. <laughs> um, it could be because people don't understand the logic of the proposal. It could be that people distrust economists, but the point is that there are proposals out there that could be combined with other sorts of actions that just have a chance of, of working. We could implement them, right? We should be able to build a coalition behind this kind of intervention. To me, that, that gives me some degree of, of hope, right? This is not hopeless. There are ideas out there. How we implement it is obviously a political problem way above my pay grade, but uh, let's, let's give it a shot, right? Let's try. Yep. Well, one thing I think we can agree on is that there's a lot of important new work going on in the field. Yep. And you may or may not know that our work includes academic economics. And my co-author, Eric Beinocker at Oxford, and I have been hard at work trying to, you know, come up with a framework that can reform the, the field somewhat. But it all starts with the right, with empirically verifiable assumptions about human behavior, about the dynamics of human social systems, so on and so forth. You, you can't make progress, for example, if you really believe the economy is a Pareto optimal equilibrium within which if one thing goes up, another thing goes down. So look, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, yeah. I wrote this textbook in behavioral economics. So much of my work is in behavioral economics, yeah. which is based on the assumption that the foundations need to shift, right? Yeah. They need to be a little more realistic if we're going to be able to build a, a an edifice that delivers on, on top of it. So I'm with you on that. But I will add that if you look at successful sciences, like outside of the social sciences, like Newton's mechanics, for example, right, which everybody knows from high school, I guess, it starts with assumptions that are wildly false. It assumes that all the planets are point masses, that's infinitely small, right? It assumes that there's this power of gravity that operates across the universe instantly and, you know, faster than the speed of light. These assumptions are like obviously false, right? If everything you do is to look at the assumptions, then Newton theory should have been tossed in the trash bin you know within seconds except it makes it, except it makes perfect predictions 
That's right. So the point here is that we assess the performance of a scientific model in general, not by looking at the realism of the assumptions taken out of context, but rather we judge the theory as a whole and we ask, does it deliver whatever thing we're expecting it to deliver, whether it be understanding, prediction, control? Now, I'm also with you that many economic models don't deliver in that Anything. respect, right? But the point is that when we assess these models, we can't just look at uh, the truth of the assumptions taken in isolation. We have to look at the package as a whole, the hypotheses, the theory, the auxiliary hypotheses, and whatever, and come to some sort of judgment about whether it, it delivers. Okay, but if all the assumptions aren't true, and it doesn't deliver any sort of ability to predict the future, I think we can agree. Then in it, the trash bin, it goes. It, it, yeah. And yet, so, and yet so essentially, here we are. <laughs> Nick, yeah, <laughs> economics is being besmirched by economics. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are, I know, we've been, we've been incredibly uh, cynical of this, uh, but we, we agree. Yeah. I mean, we are that that economics can save the world, that it must save the world, and it just requires a better economics. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, this is what we devote our lives to. So if we strongly disagreed with you, we would not be here. I thought you guys would be a lot harder on me than, than you have been. No. I mean, it is a bold claim and whatever. But, you know, uh, the fact that the, the reason why you're in this field is presumably because you think economics can deliver if yeah. it were just better, no. right? Right. And you also think economics ought to be. It's a moral, you know, duty to make it better to the extent that, that we can. And, you know, that's obviously like exactly what, what I'm arguing. You know, we might disagree about specific theories and what they deliver and whatever. I think behavioral economics is a pretty cool area. Happiness economics is a cool area. The chapter on epistemic humility might be one of my favorites. Like you might not think economists would be studying humility, right? Given that they're so um, not humble themselves. But there's a science <laughs> on that. And it leads to some very actionable evidence that we can implement in our own lives, like right now, and that we can implement in groups, you know, to become more overconfidence proof. Um, and that stuff is, is useful. It delivers. So one final question, Eric, why do you do this work? Oh, why do I do this work? Well, you know, to some extent, this is like my personal little crusade. I've always been interested in philosophy and I've always been interested in economics. And like throughout my entire like, adult life, I've had economists come to me and say, oh, you know, what's the philosophy for? It's all subjective anyway. And I've had uh, philosophers come to me and say, oh, what do you worry about economics? You know, my advisor at some point said, why are you still studying that shit? Um, <laughs> right? This is how people talk. And so I've always had to like justify myself and you know it's annoying but it's also being kind of helpful for me because it's forced me to express to philosophers why one might care about social science science and to social scientists one why one might care about philosophy i think i think both of those things are important and so this book is to some extent like a, a way for me to like justify my own existence and, <laughs> and career choices and stuff but i also genuinely feel like there's a lot of cynicism in the world. Some of that is directed against scientists. 
Um, I'm a Gen X kind of person myself, so I'm fluent in, in cynicism. But I've come to think maybe in old age that cynicism is not that helpful. We have a duty to make the world a, a better place for the people who are alive, uh, who didn't cause the problem themselves, and for future generations. I mean, I think about my kids who are going to have to suffer the consequences of the decisions that we're making. We have a duty to, to make the world a better place, and that includes a duty to pay attention to the information that we have. Uh, we know some things that we could do that have a shot at uh, improving things. We have no reason not to try to implement those things. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And hopefully we can collaborate on making economics more useful in the world. <laughs> I would love that. Thank you all so much for the conversation. I loved every moment of it. That was such an interesting conversation, Goldie, and I could have talked to Eric for hours. And I do think that the intersection of philosophy and economics mm -hmm. is useful and righteous. As we've talked about many, many times, economics as a field cannot be distinct from philosophy or politics. Right. Political economy is what we should be talking about, right. not economics per se, because at the end of the day, economics is how human societies rationalize who gets what and why. Right. These are moral normative arguments about what society should be like and how it should work and why and how that fits either within or without people's moral frameworks. And the biggest lie in economics, Nick, in, in the way it's taught, uh, in the way it's presented is this idea that you can reduce it all to math, that it's right. mathematics. And if you don't get the economics, you don't get the math and you can reduce it all. It's just numbers. It's yeah. an equilibrium system. So things always balance out. You can always do the math. And what that does is that divorces morality from economics. It says, right. well, yes, it's it might be bad for people. It might not seem fair. It might, you know, distribute vastly unequally. But it it's math. There's nothing we can do about that. It's math. That's just the way the economy works. And if we do it any differently, well, that'll uh, disrupt the equilibrium and yeah. be inefficient. And in the end, you'll just end up hurting the people you're trying to help. And that strikes me as maybe not deeply immoral in terms of intent most of the time, but certainly immoral in practice. And in the end, it's ends that count, not means. That's right. And I think where we are now in economics is where medicine was around the turn of the previous century, around the, yeah. the, the early 20th century. And you're beginning to see it become science, an actual science like it's claimed to be for so long. Not and just a bunch of conjectures uh, woven together into a mathematized story about cause and effect, which is, which is essentially what it is today. Right. And I think that maybe what you'll see is as it becomes more of a real science, more grounded in science, it's just like medicine. It'll stop killing more people than it cures. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is probably what it does today. Yeah, and I think a, a great example of that specifically, again, we talked about with Eric, his own situation with childcare when he was uh, living in the D.C. area and, uh, and, a, and a professor there. And that was the middle out moment, wasn't it? In <laughs> that, that conversation. That was, 
Yeah, that was definitely the middle moment because he, he was, you know, firmly middle class and he was earning what most people would think would be a good living. But when your child care costs are two, three, four, five thousand dollars a month. I mean, you could afford that, Nick, but you're yeah. not middle class. I could never have afforded that. And it's interesting. You see what his solution was was the exact same solution that a former guest of ours uh, was. When we talked to Anu Partanan about her book, The Nordic Theory of Everything, when uh, she and her husband uh, started a family, they ended up moving from New York uh, back to her home country of Finland, where just like in Sweden, because in the Nordic countries, high quality childcare was guaranteed, it was nearby, and it was virtually free. You know, you'd pay no more than a couple hundred dollars a month, nothing if you couldn't afford that. And services like this that allow you to live a middle class life. It's not, we think in America, middle class is about how much you earn. But but that's not it at all. It's a, it's a state of mind. It's a, a whole uh, lifestyle. And yeah. if you can't afford to send your kids to childcare, then you can't afford to work. And so you... What we, what we have, and we have this conversation going on right now with the criticisms of the Biden administration and their implementation of the CHIPS Act, where they're putting, amongst other things, child care mandates on chip manufacturers. Now, understand this. These big chip manufacturers want a piece of a $39 billion federal subsidy for expanding domestic chip manufacturing. And they are objecting to uh, having to, you know, provide child care. So that women can come into the workforce. At the same time, they're complaining about how, oh, we're going to have trouble finding enough qualified workers. No, it's it's astonishing. that That's such a great example of the kind of, and, and their objection to having to provide services to the workers whose taxes are paying for <laughs> these subsidies right. that they're using to build these factories is being echoed by the great neoliberal left. As if the quality of life of the workers who work in those factories is somehow distinct from the point of the exercise in the first place. We didn't do the subsidies so that the United States would have chip factories. We did the subsidies to improve the lives of people in the United States. <laughs> and, it go, and it goes one step further, and this was an important point that, that Eric made, is that it's good for the chip manufacturers because now they have a larger right. uh, pool of workers to draw from, qualified pool of workers, because women, and in some case men, I was a, a, a house daddy for the first couple yeah. of years of my daughter's life, that's really inefficient. To have somebody uh, home taking care of uh, one, two, maybe three kids when you can have um, one uh, teacher, you know, per, per eight kids uh, as a childcare professional. And now you can go back and do that specialized line of work that you're trained and talented and that you want to do and continue with your career. That is a much more, if you want to think about it from a neoclassical perspective, a much more efficient 
way to run an economy, but it's also, of course, more humane, and it gets to one of the core points of middle-out economics and about our economics in general, is that inclusionary principle, the more people you fully include in the economy, the faster and more prosperous it grows, and that's not just for workers, it's for businesses, it's for everybody, and it's about building this large, thriving, robust and secure middle class, right. a, a middle class that doesn't have that sense of scarcity uh, that Eric talked about. And that's a very middle outtake on the economy. So uh, what do you say, Nick? You feeling a little more optimistic that we've got uh, somebody like Eric out there making these points? Slightly. <laughs> <laughs> well, then it, success. Yeah. Eric wins. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, uh, it's it's a really I think it's a really important book. Uh, encourage people to go out and get it. It is called How Economics Can Save the World. Uh, you can buy it wherever you want, but if you want to save the world a little bit uh, better, go get it at your local independent bookstore. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.